And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's April 21st, 111th day of the year. 254 days remain to the year's over with. Well, we, uh, y'all have asked me to announce holidays and observances. The, uh, well, there we go. This is, uh, National Yellow Bat Day. The intelligence unit supported the U.S. Army operation during the Vietnam conflict. It was responsible for analyzing uh, intercepted communications. That uh, unit was disbanded in 1970, allegedly. But its legacy lives on. It's World Creativity and Innovation Day. National Tea Day. National Chocolate Covered Cashews Day. Now that's something I can sink my teeth into. National Kindergarten Day. American Red Cross Giving Day, National Bulldogs Are Beautiful Day, Feet Week, Coin Week, National Garden Month, Autism Acceptance Month, Stress Awareness Month, National Jazz Appreciation Month, National Poetry Month, Poetic Earth Month, National Couple Appreciation Month, Adoptive Ferret Month. A lot of ferrets in uh, Congress. Strong Hat Month, Month of the Military Child, Active Dog Month, Summer Tire Changeover Month, National Decorating Month, and Parkinson's Awareness Month. Let's see if there's anything else on this calendar. Advisor Appreciation Day. Battle of San Jacinto took place on this date. The victory there led to the Republic of Texas declaring its independence in Mexico. It's Big Word Day. Festival of Ridvan. International Hemp Day. Keep Off the Grass Day. National Alex Day. National Chickpea Day. National Chocolate Covered Cashews. I've talked about that. National Javier Day. National Pet CBD Day. National Surprise Drug Test Day. No. National Yellow, talk about the Yellow Bat. Uh, Tiradentes Day. Uh, Tuna Rights Day. You know, Tuna have rights too, you know. And World Curlew Day. Very strange little bird, but it's important to the ecosystem. Alrighty, uh, let's see. 753, Romulus founds Rome. 43 BC, Battle of Mutina. Mark Anthony is again defeated in battle by Aulus Hertulius, who is killed. Anthony fails to capture Mutina, and Decimus Brutus is murdered shortly after that. Uh, 900 A.D., the Laguna Copper Plate Inscription, earliest known written document found in what's now the Philippines. Now, the Commander-in-Chief of the Kingdom, Tondo, was represented by the Honorable Jayadua, Lord Minister of Pela, pardons from all debt, the Honorable Namuraran and his relations. Now, that was an interesting document to survive all these centuries. 1092, the Diocese of Pisa is elevated to the rank of Metropolitan Archdiocese by Pope Urban II. Yes, as the spokesman forgot, he waved his hands and everything changed. 1506, the three-day Lisbon Massacre comes to an end with the slaughter of over 1,900 suspected Jews by Portuguese Catholics. You know, again, we have death and destruction caused by religion. Fifteen oh nine, Henry the Eighth ascends the throne of England after the death of his father Henry the Seventh. 
1526, the last ruler of the Lodi dynasty, Ibrahim Lodi, is defeated and killed by Babur in the first battle of Panipat. 1615, the Wigna Court Aqueduct is inaugurated in Malta. 1782, uh, the city of Ratano Koshin, now known internationally as Bangkok, is founded on the eastern bank of the Chalaparaya River by King Buddha Yodfa. Chula Loki. 1789, John Adams is sworn in as the first U.S. Vice President. Actually, nine days before George Washington was sworn in as the first President. Also in 1789, Washington's reception at Trenton is hosted by the ladies of Trenton as he journeys to New York City for his first inauguration. 1792, Tiradentes, a revolutionary uh, leading a movement for Brazil's independence, is hung, drawn, and quartered. Uh, to teach him to annoy folks. 1802, 12,000 Wahhabis sack Kerbala, killing over 3,000 of its inhabitants. 1806, action of 21st of April, 1806, a French frigate escapes British forces off the coast of South Africa. 1809, two Austrian army corps are driven from Lancet by the First French Empire Army, led by Napoleon, as two French corps to the north hold off the main Austrian army on the first day of the Battle of Akmodel. 1821, Benderli Ali Pasha arrives in Constantinople as the new Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, remains in power for nine days before he's sent into exile. 1836, Texas Revolution, Battle of San Jacinto was as on this date when Sam Houston defeated Don Santa Ana. 1856, Australian labor movement, stonemasons and building workers on building sites around Melbourne march from the University of Melbourne to Parliament House to demand an eight-hour workday. That's such a short day, there's no point even getting up. 1894, Norway formally adopts the Craig Jorgensen bolt-action rifle, the main arm for its armed forces. That's a weapon that would remain in service for almost 50 years. I fired a few of those. If you don't mind your shoulder being extremely bruised, it's a good weapon. 1898, Spanish-American War. U.S. Navy begins a blockade of Cuban ports. When Congress issued a declaration of war on April 25th, it declared that a state of war had existed from this date. 1914, the Pranga incident. German arms shipment to Mexico is intercepted by the U.S. Navy near Veracruz. Germans were arming folks in Mexico. They were going to um, invade um, Texas and Arizona and uh, California. 1918, World War I. German fighter ace Manfred von Richthofen. <coughs> Unknown to history is the Red Baron. Shot down and killed over Francis Somme in France. 1926, Al-Baki Cemetery, former site of the mausoleum for four Shia imams, is leveled to the ground by the Wahhabis. In 1934, the Surgeon's Photograph, the most famous photo showing the Loch Ness Monster, is published in the Daily Mail. <coughs> it was claimed to be a hoax in 1994, but... There's always somebody wanting to debunk and make a name for themselves by proving something didn't happen. 1945, World War II, Soviet forces south of Berlin at Zosen attacked the German High Command headquarters. 1946, U.S. Weather Bureau published a paper that stated the width of a tornado which struck the city of Timberlake, South Dakota, was four miles, which would make it the widest tornado ever documented in history. 1948, United Nations Security Council Resolution 47 relating to the Kashmir conflict is adopted. 1952, Secretary's Day, now called the Administrative Professionals Day, is first celebrated. 1958, United Airlines Flight 736 collides with a U.S. Air Force fighter jet near Arden, Nevada in what's now Enterprise, Nevada. 1960, 
Brasilia. Brazil's capital is officially inaugurated at 9.30 in the morning. The three powers of the Republic are simultaneously transferred from the old capital, Rio de Janeiro. 1962, the Seattle World's Fair, the Century 21 uh, exposition, opens. It's the first World's Fair in the U.S. since World War II. 1963, the first election in the Universal House of Justice is held, marking its establishment as the supreme governing institution of the Bahia faith. 1964, the Transit 5BN satellite fails to reach orbit after launch. As it re-enters the atmosphere, 2.1 pounds of radioactive plutonium in the, its SNAP RTG power source is widely dispersed. 1965, the World's Fair of 64-65 uh, opens for its second and final season. That's the New York World's Fair, don't you know? 1966, Rastafari Movement. Habli Salas of Ethiopia visits Jamaica on the event now celebrated as Gronation Day. 1967, a few days before the general election in Greece, Colonel George Papadopoulos uh, leads a coup d'etat, establishing a military regime that lasts for seven years. 1972, astronauts John Young and Charles Duke fly Apollo 16's Apollo lunar module to the moon's surface. That's the fifth NASA Apollo program crewed lunar landing. 1975, and after spending all those billions of dollars, we didn't go back. We saw all the sights. 1975, Vietnam War. President of South Vietnam, Nguyen Van Thieu, flees Saigon as Jan Lok, the last South Vietnamese outpost, blocking a direct North Vietnamese assault on Saigon Falls. Uh, 1977, Annie opens on Broadway. 1982, baseball. Raleigh Fingers of the Milwaukee Brewers becomes the first pitcher to record 300 saves. 1985, the compound for the militant group, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord surrenders to federal authorities in Arkansas after a two-day government siege. 1987, the Tamil Tigers are blamed for a car bomb that detonates in the Sri Lankan capital of Colombo. Killed 106 people. 1989, the Tiananmen Square protest of 89 took place on this date. In Beijing, about 100,000 students gathered in Tiananmen Square to commemorate Chinese reform leader Hu Yobang. 1993, the Supreme Court in La Paz, Bolivia, sentenced his former dictator, Luis Garcia Meza, to 30 years in jail without parole for murder, theft, fraud, and violating the Constitution. Ozanani had a good administration. 2004. Five suicide car bombers target police stations in and around Basra, killing 74 and wounded 160. 2010, the controversial Kharkiv Pact, that's the Russian-Ukrainian naval base for gas treaty, signed in Kharkiv, Ukraine by Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych and Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, unilaterally terminated by Russia March 31, 2014. In 2012, two trains were involved in a head-on collision near Slaughterdick in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, killing one and injuring 116 others. 2014, the American city of Flint, Michigan, switches its water source to the Flint River, beginning the ongoing Flint water crisis that has caused lead poisoning in up to 12,000 people and 15 deaths from Legionnaires' disease, ultimately leading to criminal indictments against 15 people, five of whom have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. 2019, eight bombs explode at churches, hotels, and other locations in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. More than 250 people are killed. And in 2021, Indonesian Navy submarine KRI Nagala sinks in the Bali Sea during a military drill. Kills all 53 people on board. Well, you know, we've been talking about... Um, A lot of unsolved murders. Hmm. And of course, we have um, serial, serial, one more time, serial killers has been a uh, a great um, 
topic. You know, for some folks, true crime is putting on those $100 headphones, kicking back with a drink, listening to their favorite podcaster. For others, it's taking a bit of time out to read a real-life story filled with mystery and intrigue. And while Netflix has garnered attention for its true crime shows, others like Sky and Peacock are commissioning their own at a rampant rate. So the question becomes, what makes true crime so popular? Is there really a culture built around real-life tales of murder? Um, it would seem that there's a large segment of the population that finds stories such as uh, Mysteries of the Unexplained and Cold Case Investigations and True Crime Tales fascinating. And it's that fascination with true crime and real-life stories that's has uh, intrigued a whole lot of people. Let's face it, most fictional stories, especially mysteries and thrillers, do have some basis in reality. And if you're a fan of true crime, you'd be looked at weirdly and somebody's probably up to no good. Tell somebody you're a fan of horror movies and death metal and dark fantasies and gore films or vampire stories and you're less likely to be looked at oddly. So why are fictional horror stories created from the darkest parts of our imagination less frowned on than real-life horror? Well, there seems to be, according to the experts, if there is such a thing, a very simple answer. It's because true crime is something that's tangible and real, and fiction seems to be unreal and actually safe. Now, there's a school of thought that true crime teaches and prepares us. Readers and podcast listeners and streaming audiences love true crime for many different reasons, but ask them why, and you'll get probably one of a few uh, possible answers. It fascinates us, it teaches us, it prepares us to avoid falling in the same trap as those folks we read about. You know, there's, most people have a, it can't happen to me, philosophy. And hopefully, they're, it's correct, it won't happen to them, but if we recognize some of the signs from what we've read in true crime books, then it gives us hope we can protect ourselves and avoid uh, running into things like this. You know, for example, we avoid dark alleyways at night. We avoid the email scams, the strangers looking at us weirdly. Uh, I remember as a child, my father hammered into me, stranger danger. We walk under cover of light knowing the shadows are where the evil lies. When we can, we walk home in pairs, protected by numbers, safe in the knowledge that most people are alone when they become victims. And true crime, that is good true crime, if there is such a thing, teaches us what to look out for. It trains us to know the signs, appreciate them, and change tact to avoid the stigma of becoming a victim. And we're more aware of the reasons and motives behind crime, and hope we'll never fall into the same trap, empowered by our knowledge of how the the real world works, so to speak. And out of this fascination with true crime, there, the subculture has grown, hidden away from the mainstream and until streaming services brought true crime to the masses. Though you could argue that programs like um, SVU and Law and & Order and other real-life uh, documentary series are giving us true crime long before the Internet ever came along. The fundamental element of true crime is that it's a crime that takes place in the real world, and so it's true. But by using that same basis, the very earliest true crimes dates back centuries when crime was reported in newspapers, and then it was reported on the radio. But it's not going away anytime soon. Now, some of those we look at as... Uh, Um, 
serial killers, for example. One of them actually appeared on the dating game. And we're going to talk more about that in just a few minutes. But we're going to finish up talking about the Jack the Axe Man that I started yesterday. If you recall, it's in New Orleans. And the first uh, definitive victims of Jack were the Maggios, husband and wife, who ran a, a grocery store out of their home. They were Italian, which gave rise to the idea that maybe it was a mafia plot. Um, the killer took an axe from their own backyard, chiseled out a part of their back door, and came in and killed them in their beds. And of course, we had the uh, Bessemer Low uh, killings, where uh, it turns out this couple weren't married, which was a scandal. That was a bigger scandal than the fact that they were murdered, they were attacked in their beds. Such was the times. And, uh, you know, in spite of the scandal and Lowe accusing Bessemer of being the killer, or the would-be killer, and of being a German spy, and everything else you could think of, she went back to the home she shared with him. She died um, less than two months after the attack. And she kept repeating the fact that he's the one that attacked her. And he spent nine months in jail before a jury uh, reached a verdict. It only took him ten minutes to find him not guilty. And the investigation was so botched that the lead, two lead investigators were demoted. Well, now Jack the Axeman was a name created by the media, just like Jack the Ripper was. And over the next 14 months, he added a number of names to his list of victims. August 5th, 1918, the same day Harriet Lowe died in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery, the mystery killer attacked 28-year-old Anna Snyder, also known as Mrs. Edward Snyder, who survived, but like so many others, couldn't identify her attacker. She reported she woke up to find a dark figure standing over her just as he bashed her in the head repeatedly. Her scalp was torn open, and like most head wounds, it bled freely. She wouldn't discover until sometime after midnight when her husband, who worked the late shift, came home. Interestingly enough, in this particular case, the axe man changed his methods a little bit. In the Snyder case, there was no door panel chiseled out. Instead, uh, he, or some said she, came in through an open window. Additionally, the police never found an axe leaving all to wonder what kind of weapon was used for this particular attack. But as usual, nothing was stolen. And frankly, the failure of the Axeman to kill Mrs. Snyder was a little bit surprising in the fact she was nine months pregnant at the time she was attacked. Her head was bashed in. She was bleeding, bleeding horribly, but she made a full recovery and a week after the attack gave birth to a very healthy baby. Under questioning by police, Miss Snyder could remember nothing about the attack. And in fact, she was just happy to be alive. If anything, the deviation of, from the Axeman's modus operandi should have raised questions about whether this was a related attack, but it didn't. Such was the preconceived notions that the public and the media had about any attack of this sort. Her husband told police nothing was stolen from the home besides the six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The windows and doors of the apartment appeared not to have been forced open. Authorities came to the conclusion the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. Now, James Gleason, who police said was next convict, was arrested shortly after Snyder was found. Now, the primary reason he was arrested? He was an ex-convict. He was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated he originally ran from authorities because he had been so often arrested. And in res response to the question, why did you run? Because you were chasing me. Which makes sense. Lead investigators began to publicly speculate the attackers are related to the previous incidents involving Bessemer and Maggio. 
but there's no proof of that either. Due to the delay between the first and second attacks, nobody really expected another attack almost immediately. On August 10, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man who earned his living as a barber, not a grocer, though he was Italian, was attacked while sleeping in his bed and died at Charity Hospital. In this particular case, also sleeping in the house with Joseph's two nieces, Pauline, who was 18, and Mary, who was 13. And though both girls were awakened by sounds coming from their uncle's room, only Pauline investigated. Mary saw nothing but scream just the same, since her sister's scream had scared her, she said. Pauline later testified the two girls heard noises coming from their uncle's room, and Pauline opened the connecting door to see a tall, dark, heavyset man wearing a dark suit and black slouch hat standing by her uncle's bed. Now, she swore she couldn't tell if the mystery man was black or white, though she thought maybe he'd been white. And she said he had vanished as if he had wings. Just one minute he was there, and the next minute he was gone. And as is the case in regard to many witness statements over the weeks after the, the witnesses uh, witnessing the attack on her uncle, she talked to many reporters and began to remember many things she couldn't possibly have known. And additionally, some of the early statements she reported were decidedly odd, to say the least. For example, she said when she opened the door and saw the man standing over her uncle, she screamed and the man seemed to literally vanish. Then her uncle, who staggered out of bed, stumbled into the parlor and said, I've been hit. I don't know who did it. Call the charity hospital. And then Joseph Romano was said by uh, ambulance attendants to have walked in the ambulance, even though he later died in the hospital. Now, according to the police, this attack had all the signs expected from an Axeman attack. There was a panel chiseled out of the rear door, and there was a bloody axe found in the backyard of the Romano home. And once again, although there was money in Romano's bedroom, absolutely nothing was taken. Of course, even though the police now had at least two bloody axes and evidence, nobody even thought about the possibility of taking fingerprints. I mean, in those days, such things just weren't done. Since then, uh, since there was no central file of fingerprints against which to check the ones that might have been taken from the axes, taking the fingerprints wouldn't have done any good. No, everybody believed that this case was going to be solved. It would be solved the old-fashioned way. Shoe leather and gut feelings, which is what most cases were solved on. Now, this fourth attack also brought out a wave of hysteria that literally swept over the immigrant neighborhood. Men began to arm themselves to protect their families, and they stayed on guard at night. Strangers are viewed with great suspicion, of course. They like to be sure that the axe man was really a, a stranger Maybe it was somebody from the neighborhood who'd literally lost his or her mind. And there was no way they could be absolutely certain that Jack wasn't Jacqueline. The news that a Romano attack had also uh, had the result that brought out a number of previously unreported incidents that may or may not have been related. As with any crime of this magnitude, everybody wanted to both distance themselves from the mayhem, but at the same time get their 15 minutes of fame by helping solve it. Al Duran, another grocer, reported finding an axe and a chisel outside his back door on the morning of August 11th. Another grocer, Joseph LaBeouf, lived only a block from Romano's home, reported finding somebody chiseled the panel out of his rear door on July 28th. He also said he found an axe lying in the backyard. It seemed that almost every other person had a story about the axe man that they hadn't bothered to bring forward yet. Between the fourth and fifth attack, seven months elapsed, causing the citizens of New Orleans to breathe a sigh of relief. Mark Money said the killer had run his course in the area or had been arrested for some other crime, or maybe he was killed and it was never reported. Whatever may have been the reason for the lull in the attacks, it was thought by some and hoped by many that the attacks were over once and for all. However, on March 10, 1919, the mysterious axe man entered the home of the Cordomiglias and attacked Father Charles, Mother Rosie, and their daughter Mary. Charles and Rose survived. Mary died. In the midst of the mourning her dead child, Rosie Cordomiglia accused numerous people of being the killer before she finally accused two neighbors, Orlando Giordano and his son Frank Giordano, of being the ones who broke into her bedroom and attacked her husband, herself, and her child.
And even though her husband testified the two accused neighbors were not the killers, the jury took the unsupported word of the grieving mother and sentenced both, one to prison, and her son was sentenced to death. And though her husband denied at trial that it was Giordano's that attacked him, and Rosie Cordomiglia admitted under questioning that her memory was affected by her injuries, the unsupported word of a mother who lost her child swayed the jury. After all, everybody hoped it was a Giordano, so this nightmare could end, finally. And if they put somebody to death, maybe the real killer wouldn't kill anymore. It seemed that Orlando Giordano and his son Frank had been the first to respond to her screams and came to her rescue. And her thanks for their help was to accuse him of being the killers of her daughter. And it later came out she bore a business-related grudge against the two, and in her state of mind after her injuries and the murder of her child, she was an easy one for the police to convince to testify against anybody. They didn't seem to care who it might be. They just wanted to bring this matter to a halt because they were getting a lot of bad PR. In some quarters, uh, some thought if somebody could be convicted, maybe the real killer might go elsewhere. Eventually, after languishing in jail and after Rosie Cordomiglia admitted in court she'd lied about the what had happened because she hated Giordano's, both of the Giordano's were eventually absolved of the crimes, though both had their lives ruined by the lies told in court. I know how that is. I'm dealing with a case right now that's been going on for 10 years. City records show they lied, court records show they lied, but they've got 14 very expensive attorneys who are friends of the judge who swear that they should be canonized by the Pope the next time he comes to town. They are so above reproach. August 10th, 1919, Steve Boca, a New Orleans grocer, was attacked. He survived. First anybody knew about this attack was when Boca staggered from his home to, to the nearby room of Frank Ganusa. Boca's skull was split open. He was bleeding heavily. Ganusa immediately called for help, and Boca was transferred to the charity hospital. And though he recovered from his wounds, he wasn't able to tell the investigator anything about his attacker. He could only remember waking up to see a dark figure leaning over him and the axe coming at his head. And even though the crime scene exhibited all the signs that it was an axe man attack, police demonstrated some frustration and a lack of due care regarding uh, who they accused. They immediately arrested Frank Ganusa for the attempted murder of Boca. When Boca vehemently defended his friend, the police were forced to dismiss the charges. It's like when a wife is killed, they immediately accuse the husband, and vice versa. Well, on the evening of September 2nd, New Orleans druggist by the name of William Carlson was sitting up in his bed reading. Heard a sound at his back door and Gun in hand, he answered the door, calling out for whoever was at the door to make himself known. But nobody responded. Mr. Carlson, a very cautious individual apparently, fired through the door, aiming for where somebody had to be standing in order to reach the back door. Well, since the whole neighborhood was on edge as a result of the murders, the sound of that gunshot brought the police quickly. And while nobody was found in the backyard at the Carlson home and no sign that Carlson hit anybody with his wild shot, chisel marks were found on one of the panels of the back door. Many folks believe it was only his quick shot that saved him from being another victim of the, the dreaded axe man killer. Suddenly there was hope. Maybe Carlson had hit the mysterious axe man with his shot. Maybe wounded, he'd gone off by himself to die. Well, unfortunately, this turned out to be a false hope. September 30th, 1919, 19-year-old Sarah Lohman was attacked but survived. Lived alone and would likely have bled to death from her wounds had not some neighbors, when she failed to answer to her bell, broke into her home and found her unconscious in her bed. Bloody axe was found on the ground beneath an open window. Well, the young woman was rushed to the hospital, and as a result of that quick treatment, she survived. It was determined by the doctor she had a concussion from being hit in the head with the axe. And though she fully recovered, she never regained her memory of the incident. Like all the other victims that had survived the attacks by this mystery man, she could remember nothing about her attacker. And though he had used an open window rather than chiseling a panel out of the door in this case, the police believed she was another victim of the dreaded axe man. But with seven attacks to investigate, authorities didn't have a single clue as to the identity of this mysterious killer.
the Giordano convictions notwithstanding. Finally, on October 27, 1919, Grocer Mike uh, Pepitone was attacked and killed in his bed. Mrs. Pepitone claimed that she awoke to hear the sounds of a struggle coming from her husband's bedroom. Apparently, uh, the couple slept in separate bedrooms. Said she entered the adjoining room where her husband slept in time to see a man disappear through another door that led from her husband's bedroom. She screamed loudly, which woke up their six young children who also began to scream. Well, neighbors quickly summoned the police. They found a panel chiseled from the door and a bloody axe lying on the back porch. He also found Mike Pepitone dead. While his wife had seen the man running from the room, she wasn't able to give anything more than a general description. Well, there's been much speculation about the identity of the axe man, but there's never been any proof as to his real identity. As I remarked earlier, it's interesting to note that even in the midst of a series of unsolved murders, one victim used this situation to try and get revenge on two completely innocent neighbors due to a dislike. Rather than thoroughly investigate the facts, the police took her word for the identity of the killers, and both were sentenced to prison before it was discovered that she had lied. Situations like this help make the case so hard to solve. And some people, just in order to get their 15 minutes of fame, made stuff up. It seemed that with the murder of Mike Pepitone, Jack the Axeman ended his time in New Orleans, but there is an interesting postscript to the story. December 20th, 1920, a former New Orleans resident by the name of Joseph Mumphrey was strolling down a Los Angeles street. A heavily veiled woman dressed in black stepped out of a doorway and emptied a revolver into Mumphrey. Then the killer stood over Mumphrey's dead body, didn't make any attempt to escape. When arrested, the woman first said her name was Esther Albano and wouldn't say why she had murdered Mumphrey. Then under questioning, she finally admitted her real name was Mike, Mrs. Mike Pepitone, claimed that she had seen Joseph Mumphrey, Mumphrey run from her husband's room the night he was killed. She claimed that Mumphrey was Jack the Axeman. Well, later investigations showed that while Mumphrey had spent much time in jail in New Orleans, he'd, he did have quite a record. He'd been out of jail on the date of each of the Axeman murders. Well, as you might guess, police in New Orleans were jubilant. They claimed the Axeman was dead once and for all. But a lot of residents in that city weren't so sure. There's no proof that uh, Mumphrey killed anybody, known him as Mike Pepitone's word, that he killed her husband. She never explained why she didn't say anything sooner. And finally, if there had been no evidence Mumphrey might not be the killer, then whether correct or not, as the police did, we could put close to the case. But in spite of rumors to the contrary, the killings did not stop. Though the New Orleans police quit investigating. From New Orleans, let's go to Alexandria, Louisiana small town in Rapides Parish, some 200 miles northwest of New Orleans. It's located almost in the center of the state. It was December 1920 when a very bloody murder took place in Alexandria. About one o'clock in the morning, on a cold December morning, Rosa Sparrow abruptly awoke, alarmed by the presence of somebody in her bedroom. She saw this figure attack her husband, and it turned its weapon on her. She clearly saw the axe being swung at her head, and when it connected, she was out of it. Woke up about three hours later to find her husband dead and her 20-month-year-old daughter unconscious and bleeding. Her five boys were asleep and unharmed in the next room. Holding her bleeding infant in her arms, she ran from the house screaming for help. When the police arrived, they discovered that Joseph Sparrow had bled out. Similarities between this attack and the New Orleans uh, Axeman killings were startling, though it wasn't really appreciated by the authorities. Joseph and Rosa Sparrow, were Italian proprietors for grocery stores, were most of the victims in New Orleans. Killer came into the home through an open window, but he was carrying an axe taken from the backyard and a butcher knife taken from the grocery left behind a railroad coupling pin showing at least a minimum connection with the railroad that ran through town. In the initial attack on Joseph Sparrow, the killer had broken his jaw and sliced his throat. Rosa Sparrow was cut as well, but not as severely as her husband. Her infant daughter later died of her 
injuries. Like the New Orleans attacks, though there was cash in the house, nothing was taken. No suspects were identified, though a black carpenter that had done work for the Sparrows was arrested uh, when he was found to have blood on his clothing. Of course, after everybody calmed down enough to make a serious investigation, he was released. No further suspects were ever identified. The case was never solved. January 14, 1921, in DeRider, Louisiana, a small town about 70 miles southwest of Alexandria, Giovanni John Orlando was found sliced and bloody along with his wife and two small children. He was rushed to the hospital, but he died in surgery. Once again, the killer entered the house through an open window. And though there was money available in the home, nothing was taken. He also left behind, alongside the body of Giovanni, his weapon of choice, a bloody axe. Maria Orlando and her two children, who had been sleeping in their parents' bed, were all badly cut but survived their injuries. As with the earlier attacks, no suspects were identified, though police immediately arrested a, a black man who was described as a half-witted individual. However, he was soon released. But if you notice, in almost every case when someone's been arrested, it's either been uh, as a result of lies told by a survivor or a minority. Well, from DeRider, let's go to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Early hours of April 12, 1921, in Lake Charles, a small town about 50 miles south of DeRider, a similar killing took place. About 3 o'clock in the morning, when Marlena Scalisi ran screaming from her home, yelling for help, her neighbors converged on the home to find Miss Scalisi literally covered with blood while her husband Frank is lying on the bed. His neck was broken. Scalise had five children, one of whom slept with the parents. The other floor slept in another room. The couple also ran a small grocery out of their home to supplement Frank's wages from his job at the Powell Lumber Company. In this case, the murderer entered the home through an open window carrying an old axe he found in the neighbor yard. Upon entry, he used the axe to immediately kill Frank Scalise and raised the weapon to kill the sleeping mother and child. The problem for the killer, though was this was an old axe and had been properly cared for by its owner. And as his weapon descended toward the sleeping woman and child, the head of the axe came off from the axe handle and hit the wall, making a loud noise. Now, the old wooden handle did hit the sleeping woman, but it didn't do her any harm. At her scream, the intruder ran from the room. Arlinda grabbed her sleeping baby and ran into the adjoining room where her ten-year-old daughter Mary was sleeping. Gave the baby to Mary before running outside to call for help from the neighbors. Well, Mary, who had been awakened by the noise and the screams, got a good look at the assailant, described him as a short, stout, and black. And this, of course, raises questions about whether or not this was the axe man from New Orleans, who was described by more than one witness as being a big white man. Now, there's no question that the modus operandi and the reported axe murders were similar enough to support the thesis that the same man did all these killings. However, none of the victims could identify who attacked them and the few witnesses were of little help. And though several were arrested and two were tried and convicted, as later cleared the witnesses had lied in order to get the two convictions and were forced to later retract their testimony. Officials were just happy to be able to mark the case closed on these murders and would have indicted a ham sandwich if it could have mollified the uh, terrified public. Evidence be damned. But whoever the killer was, the man known as Jack the X-Man, he was never identified, and certainly his identity has never been brought to light over the years. Of course, a serious investigation might lead to um, an idea who this might be. Though it would be very, since there was no central database of DNA or fingerprints or anything else for that matter in 1918, It'd be difficult to put a name to any evidence that was found. Well, I mentioned earlier that um, one of the serial killers that I've been researching actually appeared on the dating game. It was uh, September 13, 1978. His name was Rodney Alcala, also known as the Dating Game Killer. He appeared on that national TV show. It marked a surreal and defining moment in the history of serial killers. Now, his total number of actual victims isn't really known, but it is suggested he was 
close to 100. He would generally pose as a fashion photographer to get close to his victims and win their confidence, and then he'd strangle them till they lost consciousness and then bring them back and around and repeat the process many times before he ultimately killed them. Now, he's been compared to Ted Bundy numerous times, not the least of which because of his charming appearance on the dating game TV show. He had a collection of over a thousand photographs of women and young boys, many in sexually explicit poses. Speculated some of them could have been other victims, as many were not or have not yet been identified. After a childhood where his father would abandon him, his mother would move around, he joined the Army in 1960 to age of 17. A few years later, he went AWOL and was subsequently diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. He's always refused to talk about his time in the military, so nobody really knows what happened during that chapter of his life. Well, in 1968, he stalked eight-year-old Tali Shapiro as she was walking to school in Hollywood. Told her he was a friend of her parents, and she went with him to his apartment. At the same time, a witness reported a suspicious incident. When the police arrived, Akala escaped out the back door, but not before he'd abused, raped, and tortured Shapiro. He'd beaten her to within an inch of her life with a steel bar. She survived to give a statement, but her parents wouldn't allow her to testify against Akala. They didn't want her uh, reputation to be ruined in the media. Had they let her do so, she might have stopped a killing spree that some claim could have reached as many as 130. He served only 34 months in prison for the rape. After his release, he moved to the East Coast where he went under a new name and studied film and photography under Roman Polanski, of all people. He would then approach women and young boys claiming he was a fashion photographer and luring them into posing for him. One victim he lured in such a manner was 23-year-old air hostess Cornelia Crilly. In 1971, her body was discovered in her own Manhattan apartment. She had been raped and strangled and was connected to Alcala 40 years after her death. Between 1971 and 1979, he had tricked up to a 1,000 young men, girls, and women to believing that he was a professional photographer. Large majority of the photos were of people in the nude or in sexually explicit poses, including pages and pages of naked girls and boys. September 13, 1978, he made his infamous appearance as a contestant on the dating game. The, uh, the host described him as a successful photographer, got his start when his father found him in a darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. The host at that time was a man named Jim Lang. An even more extraordinary twist, he went on to win the show and won a date with the woman looking for love. He had a bizarre tendency to, to appear on the show in public to the country after having killed potentially dozens of victims. After his appearance, he'd go on to kill at least another three people. While he was arrested in 1979 throughout various trials, he has been convicted of seven murders. He's been sentenced to death a number of times, some of which were commuted to life. Went until March 10, 2010 at the Huntington Beach Police, New York City Police Department's official released 120 of his photographs in order to seek the public's help in identifying him. There are another 900 photos in his portfolio that can't be released due to their sexual content. And some of the 120 have since been recognized by family members as loved ones who disappeared without a trace and may have been further victims of the dating game killer. Well, he died of unspecified causes in California, July 24, 2021, at the age of 77. Now, he was born in uh, 1943. His active years as the dating game killer are believed to be 71 to 79. And he was arrested July 27, 1979, in California. The problem with sentencing somebody to death with appeals and jack-leg ambulance-chasing lawyers coming up with everything they can think of, um, the odds of actually being executed are slim. Well, from the dating game killer, let's talk about Howard Arthur Allen. He was an American serial killer of elderly women acted between 1974 and 1987. The murder of 73-year-old Ernestine Griffin on July 14, 1987 was particularly brutal, and that one resulted in his capture. 
The day before her murder, Griffin would contact her next-door neighbor, a dentist named Dr. Seaman, told a man had stopped by her house inquiring about a car that Dr. Seaman was selling, and the man left a note with his name and phone number on it. Well, the next morning, the dentist discovered Griffin dead in her home, had a butcher knife sticking out of her chest, and her faith had been smashed in with a toaster. Handwritten, handwriting expert linked the note to Allen, which linked him to the murder. He was arrested and charged. Previously been sentenced for manslaughter after beating to death, 85-year-old Opal Cooper in August of 1974 during a robbery. He was released in January 1985, committed various robberies until his second murder, May 20, 1985, when he attacked 87-year-old Laverne Hale, who would die from her injuries nine days later. He was sentenced to death for all three of his victims, but it was later commuted to 60 years due to mental incapacity at the time of the murders. Well, he died of natural causes in prison June 5, 2020. He was 71 years old. Then we've got Richard Angelo. November 15, 1987, American medical serial killer Richard Angelo was arrested and taken into custody after assaulting a 73-year-old patient of his. By the time of his arrest, he was only 25 years old and had killed at least eight people. He has been uh, the one that was referred to as the Angel of Death. He was a nurse at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Suffolk County of New York. He used poison to kill and was linked to at least 10 deaths and the poisoning of at least 25 others. He poisoned his victims to bring on cardiac arrest so he could try and resuscitate them in front of other workers at the hospital in order to be seen as a hero. He was convicted in December of 1989 of two of the murders, one manslaughter and one criminally negligent homicide. And for other deaths, he was convicted of associated assault. It's suspected he killed at least 10. He was sentenced to at least 50 years in prison and remains incarcerated in the Great Medical Rectal Facility in Washington County. The last sentence he got was um, 61 years to life, which doesn't mean anything because with the way that um, law enforcement soft pedals crime these days uh, it can be let out tomorrow well I've talked about three serial killers and Jack the Axe Man until Monday at this time this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great weekend